Have you heard the message? It's an original science fiction podcast from Panoply and GE Podcast Theater. All of season one is available now, so check it out, listen, find out why a 70-year-old alien recording seems to be killing people. Search for The Message on iTunes. The following podcast contains explicit language. And I got my dog to sleep till seven. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds, Fox's policy podcast on the Panoply Network. Uh, I'm Matthew Iglesias, and I'm, I'm really excited to be uh, joined today by uh, both of our, our regular um, We're back, baby. hosts, uh, Ezra Klein and Sarah Cliff, uh, two wonderful, wonderful podcasters. <laughs> it, it had seemed for a little while like Sarah might be uh, exiled to New Jersey this week. Luckily, uh, they let me stay in D.C. <laughs> yeah, so we are we are glad to uh, have her escape uh, from the clutches of the Garden State. I've been going through podcasting withdrawal. Oh, it's yeah. It's been two weeks. What no. is that like? A lot of shakes. <laughs> <laughs> Talking into microphones that. whenever you can Talking find them. Talking into microphones, like worrying a lot about my vocal fry. Like I email mm. myself about my vocal fry now. Yeah, it's, it's weird. It's we, we've got to work on it. Uh, someday <laughs> we'll do a we'll do a whole vocal fry episode. But you know, right now it's sort of it's the, it's the end of the year. I think a, a lot of people, certainly at, at our company, but I think uh, around the country, are looking at their benefit enrollments and and stuff for for the new year. And there's a there's a lot of stories in the press lately about a topic near and dear to Sarah's heart health insurance premiums. And Ezra's heart. And my heart. Wait, can I preview our two other segments? Oh, yeah, they are we good. Go deep into that? Yeah. We're going to talk about the sort of escalating Islamophobia in America, in particular, obviously, as embodied by Donald Trump right now, but, but in a broader sense, too. And then we have a white paper, or in this case, an academic paper of the week that I'm really excited about, which is about these really fascinating laboratory experiments showing that when you give Republicans and Democrats a chance, they will discriminate against each other more often than people of other races will. So we will talk about that. And it is crazy fucking research. Wow. I can't, I can't even wait. I know, but I'm so exciting, excited right? to talk about health premiums right now. <laughs> so a lot of us are in the middle of open enrollment right now. We've been choosing our insurance plans. I just submitted my benefit enrollment just this past Monday. And whether you have Obamacare or you have employer-sponsored care, you are near certainly facing premium increases. And that's what we're going to talk about today is you know why insurance goes up, why it's going up right now, what's happening in the health insurance markets. And you really have two different stories, one about Obamacare, which we will get to in a second, and one about employer insurance, which is probably how most of you, if you're like the typical American, get your insurance. What is it, like 150 million people? Yeah, about half of the country is getting their insurance from their employer. Especially the affluent, (laughs) advertiser-friendly podcast listening audience that that we have, right? Yes. So we we likely have a lot of people getting insurance at work. And I get this question. I've seen it in the weeds inbox. I've seen it in my inbox so many times. Is I write a lot of stories about healthcare costs are growing slowly. We're in this period of historic low growth. And people email me saying, you know, I read your articles. You say healthcare costs are growing slowly. My insurance premiums are going up very quickly. They're going up 10, 20, 30 percent. Some people will say, can you explain what's going on? Some people will say, you're a giant liar. But basically, <laughs> people want to understand this seeming discrepancy between really slow healthcare cost growth and really fast growth of premiums. And one of the things I've realized, there's been a lot of really good studies that have come out over the past year or two. That basically show that employers, that our companies are sticking the increased cost to us, that employees are expected to pick up 
a larger and larger share of their premiums, of their deductibles, of their cost sharing. Um, so that's to say, when we talk about insurance premiums, there's two different premiums, right? There's the premium that the insurance company is actually charging, mm -hmm. and then your employer picks up some of that tab, and then there's the premium that you see on your pay stub, right? right? And so if you're a reasonable, normal person, what you care about is that premium that you are paying. But in the sort of like global universe of what is the premium, there's a different issue, right? right. So like employers can just like stick you with a heftier tab. Right. So one of the things we've seen, there's a good study from this consulting for an Aon that came out earlier this year that showed that, so let's say, you know, you have a $100 premium total, like now saying they charge, that'd be very low, but let's just use that for sake of example. And back in 2012, workers were paying on average 20.9% of the premium. That would be picking up about $21. Slowly, that's crept up over the past five years to 23%. So it's not giant, but it is stepping up. So, right, so so that means that even if the premium didn't go up at all, yes. you feel like it did. You feel like yeah. it did because your company is asking right. you to spend more. And then when you factor in all the other ways you pay for insurance, your co-pays at the doctor, the deductible you have to fill, that you see that workers, they used to in 2012, this is just three years ago, paid 38% of the overall healthcare cost. Now we're up to 46%. Mm -hmm. So there's this big cost shift going on to us as workers. And it kind of explains this discrepancy between the slow healthcare cost growth that's happening nationwide and the big healthcare cost growth that a lot of us are feeling with our insurance. Well, and isn't another thing happening, because we're, you know, insofar as we're talking about the open enrollment period people are looking at for their insurance for next year, that part of, not all of, but part of the pretty slow healthcare cost growth over the last, whatever it is, five mm -hmm. years or so, has been at least partially driven by a weak economy that healthcare costs just grow a lot slower in weak economies. And the real debate in the health mm -hmm. economics world has been, is all of the slow growth because the economy is really bad or is just half or most or a third or you know whatever fraction you want to choose because the economy is bad. But one way or another, the economy is getting better. Mm -hmm. And one thing we will expect to happen as the economy gets better is for healthcare cost growth to pick up. Whatever fraction of that was being driven by a weak economy is going to come back. And there might even be a little bit of catch-up growth because people might have been delaying certain kinds of treatments or surgeries at a time when they felt more financially strapped. It seems possible to me, though, I think we're not going to know this for a little while, but I wouldn't be surprised to see healthcare cost growth really pick up in 2016. And if insurers think that is going to happen, mm -hmm. then as they set 2016 insurance premiums, they are trying to factor that in, and they're going to be building in that kind of cost increase to, to deal with it. I guess something I don't totally understand about this is that if you're below the Cadillac tax threshold, as I think most employer plans are, it seems like there's a strong tax benefit to compensating your employees by giving them big premium discounts rather than doing this, this cost shift over to them, right? And so, like, in fact, like, a, a policy goal of the Obama mm -hmm. administrations has been to reduce the extent of that tax subsidy and get mm -hmm. employers to give people more money and less health insurance. But the actual steps that they've taken to do that have been, it seems to me, pretty sort of modest. And, and so, to me, in, in a, some ways, it's a little curious that this is happening. I mean, I know, you know, people who email me, like, right. don't like it. People are very angry <laughs> about this. But it's actually a, a policy objective, one that sort of quietly 
both parties kind of share is to get employers to spend less money on subsidizing employees' health insurance. And hopefully, I mean, we talked about this before, but but like pay them more. Um, and so to me, it, it seems like there's almost been a, a surprising level of success in making that happen. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of what saving money on healthcare feels like. It feels like actually spending. I think we've talked about this in a previous episode of the week. I even tried to name it, and you tried, nobody liked my name. I don't. Rem- I'm really sorry. I don't. The, the paradox. The, the of, paradox of cost control. Yes. So this kind of circles back to that idea where, what cost control feels like, it's you know charging me. Like right now, I have a broken foot. You can't see it on because it's a podcast. But it, it feels like <laughs> charging me. <laughs> For much more of the cost of the MRIs I'm getting. So I really have to think, you know, do I need the second MRI on my broken foot or should I like wait it out a little bit longer? So, so maybe it's worth but the, zooming. The premium, I, I want to hold yeah. on one sec because I want to zoom out on this point because I think we skipped over a, a bit of theory here. The reason economists and Republican healthcare wonks, Democratic healthcare wonks don't like this situation is that they feel when your employer compensates you through healthcare spending, right, through through paying your health care premiums, what happens is that you don't know how much your health care really costs, and so you spend more on health care than you otherwise would. The big argument in the health economics world is that this kind of distance, right, this kind of third-party payer world where when you go get your MRI, Vox Media is one who pays a bill, and you don't even know how much that MRI ever cost. That means you don't have the incentive you have when you're shopping for a TV or an iPhone or whatever to go and try and get a better deal. And so the reason there's this kind of big effort in American healthcare policy to break down the amount of compensation that comes through sort of slightly invisible employer subsidy is because, you know, folks feel that one of the things driving costs way up is the fact that the employer is the one sort of paying the tab. But the way that we're trying to deal with that is to increase deductibles, increase co-pays, narrow the network so that you don't have as many choices, which are all ways of either making you feel the cost of your health care more clearly or ways of not letting you make some of the choices you otherwise would have made. And those are meant to sort of bring down national healthcare spending. That brings down, that sort of addresses the problem of people taking this kind of employer subsidy and using it to spend more than they necessarily need to on health insurance. The problem is, even if that works to bring down national healthcare spending, it works in a way where people feel like it is increasing their personal healthcare spending. Mm-hmm. And the reason economists don't worry about this, and you've written about this in, with a, a couple of great pieces, Sarah, is that they think that that money that is being saved will eventually come out in your wages. But mm-hmm. one, the evidence that that will actually happen is very weak. And two, even if it does happen, nobody knows it's happening. You don't connect the two things. And so it's not like you say, thank you employer for my higher deductible because now I'm getting higher wages. It's a weird, uncertain process. You may not be the person getting that raise. So Mm -hmm. there's a real problem that's trying to be solved here, but the way people are solving it is making customers employees, healthcare shoppers angrier. Right. And in a way that, you know, one of the things I've learned dealing with this foot, and I'm sure many of our audience members already knew this and took this for granted, is we're doing it at a time when it's very hard to shop for health care, where we're kind of pushing people to spend yeah. more, saying, you have this deductible you need to fill, or you're going to pay co-insurance, which is where you pay a certain percent of your health care bill. And that should, in theory, incentivize you to be a smarter shopper, that I should go see you know, who charges $400 for an MRI, who charges 800 and pick the one who charges 400 because I'm paying, let's say, 10% of the bill or something like that. It, it turns out it's quite difficult. And like I said, this probably no surprise to a lot of our listeners. It's really difficult on something that's like very basic, like an MRI, to actually 
find out prices, find out quality, because there actually is quality differences in imaging, and figure out which one is the best to go to. So we have these academic theories about people could be better shoppers if they had the right incentives. Right now, you know, there's a few startups working on this, but we very much lack the tools that one would even need to approach. You know, if I want to shop for a TV, for example, I can look at the prices, I can go and I can read reviews, I can, you know, there's so many resources to shop for a car, to shop for a TV, to shop for shoes, I can, and those things I can return if I'm not happy with them. But like healthcare doesn't have any of those qualities. It also isn't even clear that when people do shop, they always want a cheaper option. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't want to tell the story of your MRI for you, but I think you shopped around (laughs) and I mean, you've written about this publicly and you ended up choosing the cheaper option and your conclusion was, I'm never going to fucking do that again. (laughs) But I think, you know, we started, I mean, what I've been hearing about from people right now is specifically premiums because this is tis the season for for health insurance premiums. And and it's worth saying there's, there's like a few different ways that that you can sort of make an insurance policy stingier, right? Particularly mm-hmm. as an employer. You can increase the deductible. So it's like you get more treatments before the insurance starts paying for you. You can increase copays, so you have to kick in more every time you get a treatment. Um, but what we're talking about specifically right now is the premiums. And that's just the money that you, as the employer, fork over to the insurance company. And to an extent, it's just an accounting convention because. There's money that, quote unquote, your employer gives to the insurance company, and then there's money that your employer gives to you, and then you give to the insurance company. (laughs) But it's really only one. And usually automatically. Yeah. (laughs) And I mean, of course, you can simply opt out and say, no, I'm not going to pay the premium. I'm not going to get insurance. But then you lose the subsidy, which is still covering 60 to 70% of the cost of the plan. So if you're prudent, you don't do that. And it's really just one sort of pool of compensation. But it's a restructuring, right? It's there's this, like a three-way negotiation between yourself, the insurance company, your benefits manager. That's both about what is the benefits package going to be, and we've mostly here been talking about making the benefits package a little less awesome. And then there's the split of you know how are we going to structure it? And so a typical company has the option of saying, well, no one's getting a raise this year. And we're plowing that money into keeping your premiums flat. But it seems like most employers are opting against that option and are saying, we want to show rising nominal salaries for our staff. And then one way that they're containing overall compensation costs is by giving you that money on the front end, and then they're taking it away in the form of of higher insurance premiums. But that whole game of premiums up, premiums down, doesn't seem to me like it would impact any of this stuff about bargain shopping or healthcare utilization or whatever, because the money is just it's just gone one way or the other. Yeah, I mean that's a fair point. Although one thing I just want to add to the sort of model you laid out there is that I think I'm not saying you're saying this, but I, I do think it's important to say that it is not the case that the actual insurance plan is staying the same price. And a lot of the sort of like right. stylized models we've used here, like the $100 mm-hmm. insurance plan, we've been right. talking about sort of an insurance plan staying the same price and the employer changing the amount, changing the share of it that they pay. 
But employers are going and negotiating with insurance companies, and insurance companies are saying to them, your same insurance plan is going up by 20% this year, or 15, or 30, or maybe in some cases negative five. But a big driver of what's going on is actually the changing cost of the exact same insurance plan. And that can change for a lot of reasons. It can change because the employee mix changes. It can change because your workforce is growing older. It can change because overall healthcare costs are going up. It can change because a new drug has been released into the market that the insurer expects it's going to need to cover a lot, but that drug is expensive. There are a million things that can go into the insurer's calculation of what they need to charge you. But a lot of this is happening because the insurer is coming back to your employer and saying, that exact same insurance you have is going to jump up this year. Right. And so mm-hmm. if, you, if you read Vox.com or you listen to the weeds and you're, you're deep in the public policy world, you should understand that if your employer comes to you and says, the premiums we are charged went up 10%. So in order to afford keeping the premiums that you are charged low, we are implementing a 1% across the board pay cut. <laughs> you should understand as a rational consumer that that would be a smart decision by the benefits manager that that is much more tax efficient for you because you pay taxes on your salary and you don't pay taxes on the employer side premium. Now, in the real world, a benefits manager who attempted to announce that policy would face a massive revolt and and nobody has ever done that. (laughs) So it's to avoid across the board cuts in pay. They have to increase the premium on you. I mean, I shouldn't say have to, but that's what they choose to do. They say, well, we're not going to do an across the board pay cut. And we can't just take out of the corporate treasury a 10, 15% increase. So we have to increase what we ask the employers to kick in, which is exactly the same as cutting your pay across the board, except it also makes you pay more taxes. And it really would be better for them to take full advantage of this. But they just but don't. Let me argue that it's not the same as an across-the-board pay cut in, in one way. I, I very much take the point you're making about compensation. But I do just think it's worth saying, and, and this is one of the things that is obscured, and one reason I think the employer-based health care system is a bad idea. It is not obvious that people value a dollar in health care benefits the way they value a dollar in wages, or even to, to make the sort of tax calculation more, more complete, a dollar thirty in health care benefits the way they value a dollar in wages. I think in a lot of experiments where you actually get people to make these trade-offs, it turns out that above a certain level of health insurance, they actually just want the money. And so one thing that will happen, and one reason people are upset and they don't want to take the pay cut and so forth, is that particularly in a world where most of the healthcare spending that's happening on them is sort of this kind of iceberg, it does not feel to them like something to value, and, and particularly for younger, healthier employees, it does not feel to them like something to value to keep a you know, pretty generous insurance plan at the exact same level as opposed to getting a pay increase. One of, well, that, one of the things that makes true, this very but hard also, But I, I think there yeah. is just a lot of anchoring, right, in people's negotiations. About this. By the same token, benefits managers never say, hey, we're shifting everyone to a catastrophic only plan. We're not covering anything, but everyone's getting like 300 extra dollars, right? I mean, the tendency is whatever you were doing last year, yes. you try to maintain something that is similar to that, yep. but consistent with people's pay going, if it's up a tiny, tiny amount, but definitely not down, right? Like, Yeah, the, the, only, reason, the only reason I, I, bring, I bring up that issue is just because I think one of the things that is happening in a very broad way, right? It's happening, and, and we can talk about Obamacare in a second, because it's partially what's been going on there too, but... You are watching for a large variety of reasons, from rising healthcare costs over a long period of time to the coming Cadillac tax, et cetera, et cetera. Employers trying to 
force employees to make something that looks more like that ideal choice, yes. right? Like how much do you really value a dollar in healthcare against a dollar in wages? There was a healthcare bill that was around at the same time as Obamacare called Wyden Bennett. Um, and this was a healthcare bill, beloved of wonks, myself included. One of the things it would have done was it would have ended the employer-based system by cashing out all employer benefits and giving employees that money. And then employees would have taken that money and gone to these exchanges and bought whatever insurance they wanted. And the theory of Wyden Bennett was that if you did that, people would end up in many, many cases making much stingier health insurance choices than what they're doing under the current sort right. of anchoring system. And I think one thing that's happening in a slow and very painful way right now is people are trying to move a little bit closer to that world. But as, as Sarah said, you know, moving from whatever it was, 21% goes to the 21% of costs fall on the employee to 23%, and the employee screams about that. That is a very painful, painful change for a lot of people. They're just not being able to set up that choice in a clear way, so they're trying to get nearer and nearer and nearer to it, but it just it's happening slowly and in ways that are really inefficient. We've mentioned Obamacare a, a number of times here, but the premium setting process there is completely separate from, from this, right? Right. Yeah. So one of the things we've been seeing in Obamacare this year is really big increase in premiums. There's different ways to measure it, but no matter how you measure it, the increase is way bigger in 2016 than it was in 2015. So granted, we're only working with two years of data right now. Obamacare's only been around since 2014, so this is the third open enrollment, open enrollment period. But HHS data, the Health and Human Services, they found that the premium increases in 2016 are triple what they were in 2015. And I will be doing more reporting on this because I'm genuinely interested on what exactly is happening here. We do have a few theories. One is that the people who are on Obamacare are sicker than we thought they would be. That, And this has been, you know, a fear raised by Obamacare supporters, a criticism raised by Obamacare opponents that the people who are going to use Obamacare are going to be old, they're going to be sick, they're going to need a lot of health care. That's one thing you see in some of the insurer's rate filings is an acknowledgement that people are sicker than they had thought. We also might have something going on where rates for 2014, the first year of Obamacare, they came in way below what the Obama administration had expected. I think it was, I'll double check this number and put it in the show notes, I think it was 27% lower than CBO projections. And it's possible that, you know, insurance companies really underset at the start and are now oversetting. It's possible that they underset as a strategy, that they really wanted to get people on their insurance plans, and now they're starting to hike up right. the rates. And the big question now is, how are people going to react to it? Are they going to see this as a valuable product? Are they still going to enroll? Are they going to find Obamacare valuable You know, at these higher rates? And one of the a question there that is, I think, a really big unknown, it's really big unknown for the Obama administration, a really big unknown for healthcare wonks, is that, to your point about potentially insurers pricing plans pretty cheap and then jacking up the prices, hoping that the people who are in those plans are just going to pay the number. You know, nobody likes switching their insurance. You've got to find new doctors. You've got to figure out a new benefit package. It's a pain in the ass. One of the things people don't know is, will individuals every year go back to the exchanges and search for a better deal? Will they every year go back and look at what the offer is it is being made by their current insurer and say, oh, no, that United Health offer isn't a good one. I'm going to go with Blue Cross or I'm going to go with Aetna this year. 
it is a real unknown right now, the degree to which people will use that shopping mechanism to keep prices down. That is what the Obama administration hopes. It is what healthcare wonks hope in general. This is, by the way, also a Republican theory. If you look at how, say, Paul Ryan wants to rebuild Medicare, it also relies on this kind of thing happening. But it is currently a very hypothetical thing that individuals and families are going to be willing every single year to go back and choose a new insurance plan in order to get the best deal. If they do that, then all insurance plans are going to have to become more efficient and be a very good thing for prices across the market. But if they don't, if they end up just getting locked into it, then we're just going to be in the situation we're often in where insurers are are more willing to pass along price increases than they are to sort of make tough decisions to keep costs down. When I survey the evidence on insurance switching, is that there's evidence that a lot of people won't do this. I think, and again, I'll double check this number and correct it in show notes if I'm wrong, but about a third of Obamacare enrollees switched plans, um, which I actually thought was That's kind higher of high. than I would have thought. Or maybe it was a third sh- actually shopped and looked. I don't know if okay. a third switched, but I think it's definitely less than half who are switching. We also have decent data from Medicare Part D, which is the prescription drug plan, where we see that plans are very sticky. Once you pick a plan, you're very unlikely to leave that plan, even if there's another plan that would cover your drugs at a better cost that you could do better with. It's understandable. There's this massive market of plans. You know, you have to think about some of the time you're going to spend on shopping. Are you going to find the plan that has your doctor? So I do understand, I think, in an academic sense, we talk about, oh, it's so obvious, of course you should switch to the cheaper plan if it's going to you know, cover your care better at a lower price, but there's actually a lot of costs, you know, time costs associated with it. One reason I would be optimistic about people switching in Obamacare is that you know, healthcare.gov obviously gets a pretty bad rap and a terrible launch, but the interface is becoming increasingly easy to use. Their directories or doctors are becoming better, so they are doing a lot of work to build an interface that makes shopping possible. So that's one reason I would expect to see maybe a little more switching. But I think in general, I would be shocked if more than even five years from now, more than half of Obamacare enrollees are switching plans. But I I think there's a little bit of a, a conceptual problem with this, which is that if you look at something more normal, like cell phone plans, those are, you know, they're somewhat sticky because, I don't know, people don't like to change things. But one thing that tends to unstick them is that there's a lot of marketing, right? AT&T and Verizon and Sprint and T-Mobile, they're constantly advertising. They send me stuff in the mail. They want you to switch over to their plan. And if they come up with a new deal if they advertised that they on think the is, is sure, then everyone would switch, right? I mean, I, I use, a, well, I won't get into it um, unless someone pays me. Um, but the point is, is that marketing for that kind of stuff is, is big. Those are some of the most prominent advertisers out there precisely because it's a sticky market and they know it's hard to dislodge people. But the reason they spend so much like that is that having more customers is always good if you are a cell phone company. You have invested in all of this fixed infrastructure, all these towers everywhere. I have no idea how the towers work, but it's expensive. Uh, And so they want more paying customers. Obamacare, by design, is set up so that many, many, many customers of your insurance plan cause you to lose money. And so they don't necessarily want just any old person to come sign up because they've been told the whole way the policy works is that they can't charge you more just because you have pre-existing medical conditions that are going to make you very, very expensive to cover, right? So it's not in your interest to go out and find the people who are like most jazzed up about using healthcare and get them to come <laughs> over 
and get on your plan. So of course they do some marketing because you wouldn't be in the marketplace at all unless you wanted some kinds of customers. But it's a very unusual kind of market where if certain people like come knocking down your door, you're going to be in big trouble, right? You don't want to be like, oh, this is the plan that's good if you really need to see no, the doctor. Right, you want to advertise on no, the gym. You have to advertise. No, you have to advertise. This is, I think it's outlawed in Medicare Part D now, but advertising like a gym benefit. Or um, I heard anecdotes about putting your like enrollment office like multiple yes, flo- floors of steps too. high, right. so only like the healthy seniors can get there. I've seen some uh, Obamacare insurance type stuff advertising an NBA game. Right, because mm-hmm. it is a very, very male audience, right. and you can't gender rate. You know, to an extent, Obamacare is just a hard-boiled political compromise. But there's also this theory, right, a sort of third-way-ish theory about harnessing the powers of capitalism combined with regulations and public money to achieve sort of traditional social democratic ends. And you have a real problem, though, because the core function of a capitalistic insurance company is to take people who are bad insurance risks and get rid of them. But the core like social democratic purpose of a universal healthcare system is to get those people medical care. And there's like a endless clash between those two ideas. And I think you see it when it comes to switching and you see it in a million different places related to this plan. You have to decide like what are you actually trying to, right. to like what are you hoping to happen here right and you see you know you see that tension coming up with united healthcare saying like we might not sell on right. the exchanges next year that kind of we see what our aim is we see the aim of obamacare and we just don't see a way to reconcile those. Wait, and, it's like United yeah. Healthcare did too good a job of <laughs> signing up people who required healthcare treatment and then paying for them to get medical treatment. Like that's what Obamacare yeah. wants the insurance companies to do. But United Healthcare they did it and they were like, "Uh-oh. Like we didn't actually have like a great Jedi mind trick to keep the sick people away. So now we're shutting it down." And one dog that hasn't barked here in the Democratic primary When Democrats thought about this problem in 2009 and 2010, their answer for it, and I'm not sure this was a very good answer or was a sufficient answer, but it it was an answer that was relevant, was a public option. And there were two versions of a public option, one which would be attached to Medicare and would use Medicare's bargaining power, and that that would really be able to undercut private insurers in price. And the Obama administration basically closed that down very early on. But there was another idea, which was basically that the federal government would simply run a normal insurer, that it would run a public insurer, and it would just be like a private insurer. It just would have different incentives in a private insurer, right? It wouldn't have tremendous legal bargaining power or anything, but it it just would be trying to cover people, and it wouldn't be trying to make a huge profit, and it wouldn't have an incentive to do this gamesmanship and whatever. And, you know, when you looked at estimates of what that would do, it, it wouldn't have done all that much. There was no particular reason to believe it would be much cheaper, and maybe it would be more expensive because it would end up getting more sick people. But it would create a kind of a benchmark and a bit of a safety valve. It was one way to sort of see what were insurers really doing versus what the public insurers was doing. And the public option is really important to people, to Democrats in 2009, 2010. When I covered Obamacare, it was such the flashpoint of controversy that it was most of what we ended up covering, even though it didn't end up being in the bill. But once it was cut out, you do see Republicans with a lot of different, you know, sort of ideas right now for how to repeal or reform Obamacare. 
You do not see Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders and Martin O'Malley running around the country really emphasizing that they will get elected and put in public option into Obamacare. Well, to be, there was public option, what I'd call public option light, the co-ops, which were supposed to be these nonprofit plans that have essentially failed miserably. Yeah. At least half of them. But public option supporters were always like weirdly cruel on the (laughs) co-ops. But I just would say, as a political rationale for why they're not running around supporting this public option, and it really speaks to, you know, one of the ideas. Bernie Sanders is, to be clear, Proposing a yes. giant federal takeover of the entire healthcare system. That's so a fair it, point. It's not like he's like forgotten about this. Although to circle back, that's, to that's the, fair. Yes. He's got a single payer plan. He, he and so it, it's made it less relevant for him to argue for Obamacare reforms. Right. I yes. just mean for a while across the broad swath of the Democratic Party, there aren't House members who are going down on the floor every day talking about the public option. I've just been surprised to see. Right given how important it was to Democrats during that yeah. time, how absent it has been from all Democratic politics since I that I agree. Moment. Although this particular weird three-way Democratic primary is actually a perfect storm for not reviving the public option because you have Sanders who's so far left that he doesn't care about the public option idea, right? And he's just completely transcending this with Medicare for all. Hillary Clinton is obviously like a standard bearer for like sellout neoliberalism and, you know, just like Obama and never really cared about this stuff and they're happy to drop it. And then Martin O'Malley, who politically like should be the public option guy, because he happens to have been governor of Maryland, mm-hmm. has like this better idea, which is that you should do the regulatory stuff and do the all-payer rate setting. And so it's been excluded from, from the and debate. And I, I would layer on top of that that we have tested this public option light, and it's proved incredibly difficult for these new insurers to come into the market. One right. of the theories of Obamacare was that these these marketplaces would kind of open up the insurance market. You'd have companies come in and, you know, start these smaller insurers. And Obamacare funded at least two dozen of these cooperative insurance plans that were going to be nonprofit. Right. And they've been, like, a disaster. The New York one is shutting down. It's leaving thousands of people having to switch plans. So we're learning it's very hard to build an insurance company, even if it has, like, government backing and government loans. It's very hard to build an insurance company in this industry that's dominated by essentially three or four large players. So, you know, I I think that what what you're sort of coming down to here in the end is that, unfortunately, like, we don't really know. But (laughs) you see a really sharp partisan politics around this that also makes it difficult to do any kind of small-scale adjustments. In theory, I think what you would say about a large, complicated policy change is that there's a certain amount of inherent uncertainty around what's going to work and what's going to go on. And so what we're going to have to do is, after one year of information comes in, maybe change something a little bit. And then after two, three, four years, like change some more stuff and try to adjust. Well, well, let me make that really concrete, right? So let's say that, uh, as we have said, that one of the issues is insurers are finding that the risk pool is sicker than they thought it would be. Obamacare has a dial you could turn in that context, right? You would turn up the individual mandate. And to be fair, the individual mandate actually is turning up a little Mm -hmm. bit, right? Between 2014 and then to 2015 and now to 2016, it gets more expensive. But after that, it doesn't. So there were real fears when Obamacare was passed at the individual mandate, which do you you remember the numbers offhand? It's like two point something percent of income in 2016. Oh, I, I don't remember it off the oh, It's, low. it's, yeah, it's, it's low. low, though. It's, it's, it's not it's big. Low, I mean, yeah. it's, it's a hell of a lot cheaper than buying insurance. Yes, that is right. the point. Right. Yes. And in a world where you had two parties that were interested in making Obamacare work and they saw that not enough healthy people were coming into the pool, what they would do, would they would turn up the individual mandate. 
there is no chance in hell that will happen. And so we're kind of in a, in a weird place right now where employers actually have a lot of ways to deal with these kinds of questions. They can change how people sign up. They can change what insurance they offer. They can change the deductibles. They can do all of this different stuff. And so there are dynamics in that market, but it's also kind of, it just is what it is there, right? Your employer either offers you health care or they don't. You either leave right. the company or they don't. And it's become a norm that the healthy it's people, a norm. people are used to sign it. up for care and they subsidize the sick people totally. and we're all just used to that at our jobs. But, but then in Obamacare, as Matt says, there are things we are learning as time goes on and we will continue to learn as time goes on. But you know, there's a certain amount of regulatory discretion within the law. But in terms of actually changing the law, like in changing how it works to adapt to new information, the political equilibrium like will not allow you to do that at all, which is a, a huge – in the long run, I don't know if it's a big problem in year three, but by year 10, if it continues, it'll be a big fucking problem. Right. I mean, it's just in general, things don't designed that way don't work, right? If you say, we have a big, complicated system, and no matter what happens, we're not <laughs> going to change it at all right. because the only option on the table is to completely scrap it. You couldn't run the army that way. You couldn't right. run. We saw. You like, couldn't the, run Medicare that right. way. Medicare is constantly getting. It's you know we, over fifty years old and it's constantly getting little tweaks. And we have changed Vox.com a lot since we have launched. We've changed the weeds. Since yeah, we've, we've changed launched. the weeds. So true. So I think we should we should probably take a take a break for a sponsor and then change the weeds to a to a second topic. Today's episode of The Weeds is brought to you by The Message, an original science fiction podcast from Panoply and GE Podcast Theater. Hi, Nikki Tomlin here, and I'm the host of The Message. I'm going to take you into an elite cryptography think tank and check it out. Their top project right now is to decode a highly classified radio transmission from the 1940s. Have you listened to it yet? Not yet. Uh, we're having a discussion about that. But if I offered you the chance to listen to it right now, uh, sounds like a no. Well, we don't really know what it is. Voices, music, breathing. But, you know, I'm not going to mess with that thing. To sum it up, extraterrestrials. Subscribe to The Message on iTunes. Okay, so the big political controversy that is dominating headlines this week and really profoundly dominating them, like globally even, is that Donald Trump came out and said that the United States should bar all immigration from Muslims. And it has been treated in the press as a completely outrageous thing to say. And people have really sort of like gone to town on him. And part of what's unleashed that is that Republican Party leaders, this has sort of been the trigger that has caused not only all the different candidates, but Paul Ryan, uh, Rents Priebus, whose name I have no idea how to say, <laughs> but is the chair of the RNC. They've all piled on to him. And, and that's in part because it's sort of an outrageous thing to say. But it's also, I think, we all know that there's sort of been this Donald Trump problem out there for Republicans for a while. And they've been a little bit waiting for a coordination moment to like all jump on him and, and stab him. Well, they've had a couple of them 
and they haven't worked. Right? Yeah. Like the John McCain war hero issue. And I thought there was actually a really sort of funny, slightly telling thing about this, which was that Ben Smith, the editor-in-chief of BuzzFeed, right. sent this memo out to people. And it was about how it's acceptable to talk about Donald Trump. And basically, he was saying that the rules of view from nowhere journalism are temporarily suspended for the purposes of people calling Donald Trump a racist. <laughs> and the exact phrase he used was that there's nothing partisan about calling Donald Trump what he is. And I think that is very genuinely, literally true. There is nothing partisan about it because the stakeholders in the Republican Party don't like Donald Trump. So they don't mind if MSM reporters all go dump on Donald Trump the way they would be really upset if I said that Jeb Bush's plan to let Christian refugees from Syria in but keep Muslim refugees out, if I said that was racist, the Republican Party would be really sort of mad at me. But they don't like Donald Trump. So you can say whatever you want about Donald right. Trump, and it's not, quote unquote, partisan. And so that's sort of where we are with Trump. This idea, uh, I am against it. I, I don't think we should have blanket religious discrimination against Muslims. <laughs> I'm a little unsure as to why this is considered more outlandish than when Donald Trump two weeks ago said we should have a national registry of all the Muslims living in the United States. And he wanted to close down a bunch of mosques. Yeah, and shut down mosques. But also Marco Rubio said that shutting down mosques alone wasn't enough. And we also had to potentially shut down coffee shops where people were- Wait, really? Yeah. So <laughs> I, I've been- that, that is some shit I didn't know. I mean, it circles back to the Starbucks Red Cup controversy. <laughs> and it was, it, I think that was Rubio's way of trying to sort of take this mosque shutdown conversation out of the space of narrow religious discrimination and into sort of generalized shredding of the Constitution. But I'm, I'm looking this up. It, it was, a, it was a, a bit of an odd moment to be. In general, I guess where I'm going with this is that while I think that what Donald Trump is saying about this is pretty outrageous, it seems to me to lie much more on a smooth continuum with where other people in the political system are than it's really being given sort of right. credit for. There was an interesting Rand Paul, I forget, I think we had it on Vox, but Rand Paul basically saying, well, I don't support that, but I support something very similar. And it's, do you have this coffee shop thing pulled I, up d- now? I do. <laughs> will, will you read for us? He said on the Kelly file, Marco Rubio said on Fox News is a Kelly file. It is not about closing down mosques. It's about closing down any place, whether it is a cafe, a diner, an internet site, any place where radicals are being inspired. Right. Uh, th- that, I mean, I mean a lot of things happen at coffee shops. I mean, one way you could take that and be like, okay, maybe he means like super narrowly, but right. He, yeah, he, he, said, he goes on to say, whatever facility is being used, any facility that's being used to radicalize and inspire attacks against the United States should be a place that we look at. So I think the generous interpretation here would be like, if you have a coffee shop that's not really a coffee shop, it's really an ISIS plotting headquarters, you should shut that down. But that is not the comment you make if the point you want to make is Donald Trump saying we should just shut down mosques is an incredibly terrible thing to say. I mean, obviously, you know, if you go back to your like really basic, like, why do we have a constitution? Like, what's the point (laughs) of free speech, right? It's that if you have like Marco Rubio's department of coffee shop shutdowns (laughs) and they're supposed to sit there with like a board of seven people and they're deciding like what is excessively radicalized, right? So, you 
you know, what if you have a coffee shop? I, I don't know why <laughs> it's a coffee shop, but there's a there's a venue of some kind, an internet website, like say uh, uh, electronicintifada.net, right? <laughs> right. Which is engaging in rhetoric about the Israel-Palestine conflict that, to me, is a little over the top, but within the bounds of reasonable stuff. But that I know, to my aunt Lisa, constitutes <laughs> outrageous incitement of, of violence against Israelis, right? And so. Because we have a First Amendment, one thing we can all agree upon as Americans is that though we may disagree about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, there is a right to free speech and to have an internet forum in which ideas are discussed. And so to me, this Rubio proposal, that was really a really weird sort of dangerous thing to say. But he he's like the mainstream establishment person, so you didn't have this kind of pylon about right. it. And then you had the entire leadership of the Republican Party responded to the Paris shootings by ginning up an issue about Syrian refugees. But I don't think there's any way to understand the politics of that other than them saying that Syrian refugees are too dangerous to be allowed into the country because they are Muslims. That's not the literal text of what Paul Ryan and everyone else was saying about the Syrian refugee issue, but there's no logic to it otherwise. The right? point being, just for people who don't know the Paris attacks that well, because the Paris attacks were not done by Syrian refugees. They were done by the people Syrian refugees are fleeing. And so right. to, to say the response should be to keep out Syrian refugees is to kind of say that because of religion, because of ethnicity, other things... It's kind of too much all the same, right? And and so we. Well, can't I think let there was in, right? also to give to to be more generous to their view that you did have one of the attackers attempting to come in it, as I, a refugee through. I, I think Greece, it turned out it? that wasn't true, wasn't it? That that, well, he, that passport when, was forged. Was, but, but he used that forged right. passport to come in as a refugee through. But, but that was Greece. what, to be fair, that was what I thought was offensive about this yeah. because you can forge documents to come into America many, many different ways. And like, it's a hell of a lot easier to forge a document to come in as a European tourist than right. to forge a document to come as a refugee. The refugee program in America is like very stringent, actually. That to me was a place where like when you looked really into it, that's why I think it, it was this kind of deeper, more generalized anxiety. Well, and then you saw both, both... If, if the issue is document forging, the, the place to start is not Syrian refugees. Right. And, and then both Ted Cruz and Jeb Bush said that, well, we should make an exception for Christian refugees from Syria. Right. Right. Where, again, I mean, obviously what they are saying, and I mean, it's not... To be clear, it's not a totally, totally unreasonable notion, right, that if you had no people of Muslim background in the United States of America, then probably you would reduce the odds that any of them would secretly be, you know, ISIS operatives or something like that. But as you saw, when Donald Trump took the subtext and made it text, everyone is like, no, that's horrifying. You can't just have blanket <laughs> religious discrimination. But it clearly was the subtext of not just like what some Republicans were doing. And so to me, this world in which Donald Trump, more and more people I hear like calling Donald Trump a fascist, and yet the mainstream Republican view is that we should have religious discrimination among which refugees we let in and possibly shut down all mosques and coffee shops where we don't like what people are saying. And it's, I mean, again, I don't want to say that where Trump is is identical to where other people are because it clearly isn't, but it's not, oh my God, where did this come from, right? The logical relationship between and the Trump agenda and the mainstream Republican agenda is very clear to me. It's clear to conservative talk radio hosts. It's clear to Republican Party voters. And it's clear in polling. One of the things I think is really important about Trump is that his political antenna is very good. There is polling that shows 76% of Republicans think 
Islam is incompatible with American values, I think was a question. And and by the way, 43% of Democrats agree. So it's a majority of the country that believes that. But I think it's more like 56% of all Americans. But 76% of Americans believe Islam is fundamentally un-American. And 30% of Republican voters in Iowa, which is a very important state for, for, for Republican presidential candidates, 30% of GOP voters in Iowa think Islam should be illegal. Yeah. And if you get 30% of Republicans in Iowa, you might win Iowa. And if you win Iowa, you might win the election. So this is not nothing that they're responding to, right? I mean, this is a, a place where they are responsive to a genuinely significant strain of a sentiment in, in their party. And something I would also just connect to it, and this is somewhere where I think Donald Trump is kind of a, a, a genius in the way he campaigns, this argument from him was released on the same day the first ever poll showed him losing to Ted Cruz in Iowa. So that morning, a poll comes out, it shows Ted Cruz ahead of Donald Trump in Iowa, and that afternoon, Donald Trump sends out a press release, which is often not how he makes announcements this way, by the way, but he sends out a press release saying that we should bar Muslim immigration into America. And when he does that, the media explodes and everybody covers Donald Trump. And then there's this big fight about what can you say? And Donald Trump gets to be standing against the establishment media, gets to be standing against the establishment Republican Party, and gets to be showing that, that he will utter the words that other politicians will not utter, that, that he will not be cowed by political correctness. And something that I thought it was an interesting connection to is that there is this long-running Republican argument that one of the major problems in the war on terror is it Obama will not say, what, what is it, Islamic radicalism? Radical Islamic okay. terrorism. Radical Islamic terrorism. It's, it's some, some, vari some variant of that. But that it's a serious problem. Like it's a genuine setback for our efforts to keep the country safe and to win things like the fight on ISIS, that Obama is being too politically correct to name this what it is, which is a religiously motivated problem in the country. And this is a more extreme version to some degree of, of that argument, that Donald Trump is taking that to its, its real extension and saying that you know all these other politicians, they are too afraid to say what is obviously true here, that the problem here is Muslims and it's a religious problem. And you know I'm the only one who will do that. When he does it, he gets all this coverage. He goes up in the polls. He's very smart. He's playing to a real audience here. But he is also, I, I think, as you say, Matt, you know, taking something that has been around in the water to its logical conclusion. Well, and with a mastery of like how the media works. He's fucking really where good at that. You, like you said, you know, so instead of talking about this poll where he's behind, he's on. I think we had a piece on Vox, which we'll put in show notes, of that he's calling into like literally every network yeah. and having these interviews about his new statement, and no one's asking, "Oh, you're falling behind in the polls," which would seem, you know, he set it up so that seems like kind of an absurd question to lead with. The question to lead with is how could you possibly want to ban Muslims from coming into the country? And, you know, I think it speaks to, I'll put this in show notes. He has this book from 1987, The Art of the Deal, where he writes about, you know, how much better it is. You know, yes, he could take out a $40,000 ad in the New York Times, but why not like get like a medium okay New York Times story about his new business deal that's so much better than any advertising he could pay for. And it, he, he's, it's the same theory yeah. that's operating right now, that he's getting all this coverage for free about the things he wants to talk yeah, about. Yeah, and I think one of the things that is so interesting about the way he acts is that Donald Trump really is what would happen if you took the skills of a reality television star mm -hmm. and put them into a presidential campaign. How do you win a reality television show? Well, it's fundamentally a fight for airtime. The point of 
being on a reality television show is to be famous when you come out the other side. And the way to do that isn't to be there to make friends, right? You have to be there to not make friends. You have to go, and when you're in that confessional or when you're in, in, in the living room or whatever, you have to say the things that will get the producers to cover you as the main character of the show. And it doesn't matter if you're covered positively or negatively, really. You can always turn that renown into some kind of celebrity later, and you can always shift you know, its valence when you need to. But Donald Trump is someone who really understands the dynamics of reality television. He really understands that the most important thing isn't how you're covered. It's whether you're covered. It's whether you are the person who's getting that scarce airtime. And every time he seems in danger of losing it, right, like Ted Cruz would have naturally started getting a lot more coverage now that there was some evidence he was becoming the front runner in Iowa. But now Donald Trump is going to get all that coverage. And that coverage is going to keep Donald Trump ahead. And, and I really think understanding Trump through the lens of a reality television star, that's why he understands media so well. It turns out that the dynamics of reality television and the dynamics of covering a presidential campaign aren't that different, which, by the way, is something kind of dystopic sci-fi novelists have known for a very long time. But we're just seeing the kind of thing we would have written as a hilarious parody of 2015 America in 1995 come true. So this is what Donald Trump wrote about his views on the press in 1987, where he says, he achieved a lot when I was very young. I always chose to live in a certain style. The result is the press has always wanted to write about me. I'm not saying that they necessarily like me. But from a pure business point of view, the benefits of being written about have far outweighed the drawbacks. So, and he's like admitting a lot of the coverage is not positive, but that he kind of sees from this reality star-esque point of view that the benefits of coverage, you know, far outweigh any yeah. drawbacks. But I, I think another thing that makes this work, though, is the role of conservative talk radio, which tends to fly a little bit under the radar because it's difficult. It's just literally difficult to consume and process and know what's going on. But Rosie Gray had a good piece at BuzzFeed about, you know, she'd like listened to like two days of conservative talk radio about Trump and this. And, and on conservative talk radio, people were generally favorable to Trump without explicitly endorsing his position. And Rush Limbaugh actually puts his transcripts up. And so he has this long thing where he never says that he thinks Donald Trump is right about banning all Muslims from immigrating to the United States. But he says that Donald Trump is a political genius, that Donald Trump is playing the media correctly, that the Republican establishment is teaming up with the liberal media as they do time and time again, and it never works for them. They never get the respect from the MSM that they are craving. He says that we know politically that this is a position that many people agree with, and Donald Trump is the only one who's speaking up for it. So Rush is walk in the line here, right? right. And, and Rush could be on the other side. If Rush was a, a better human being, or if Rush was just a better team player for the Republican Party's objectives, he would have joined in on the pylon, right? Rush Limbaugh could be saying, look, if you think that abortion is murder, if you think that taxes are too high, if you think that Obama's regulation is strangling the economy, it's time to get serious people, not waste our time with Donald Trump. It's time to get a nominee who is going to win the election and solve all of these very serious problems that I, as a conservative <laughs> talk radio host, think are a really big deal in America. But like Rush is not doing that. And most of his colleagues in that space are also not doing that. Now, the sort of high-toned conservative journalists in 
the text space largely are doing that. Like articles in National Review, like blaming liberals for the Trump phenomenon. People are very sad that cable news is pumping it up. But conservative talk radio, which is a, a you know, it's an ideological space, but it's also a commercial space. It's a very commercial space. They clearly like Trump and they like being Trump's standard bearers. And he speaks for both to an extent their worldview, but also to their desire to have bombastic conflict with the mainstream media rather than something boring like tax cutting legislation right. or you know the the things that would flow from a Republican president being elected are really big deals in the policy realm but they're not necessarily the same kind of like big epic clash that this like Donald Trump versus the forces of human decency represents <laughs> and, and they they enjoy keeping that going and it's it's keeping him afloat I think Speaking of the forces of human decency, that's a good segue to our research of the week. One of my obsessions in American politics and covering American politics, and it's related to, to a lot of what we've been talking about here, is the way the nature of partisanship is changing over time. And I think this is very easy for people to miss because we have for a very long time had a Republican Party, we've had a Democratic Party, and so we kind of look back 20 years, 40 years, 60 years, 80 years, 100 years, and you know, there's always been a certain amount of conflict between the two parties, and so it's very easy for us to say, Oh, it's always the way it's always been, right? Like it, it, this is just you know more of the same. We've always been bickering, and I think the evidence really shows that partisanship is hardening and mutating into something much more profound and fundamental. And I found this really fascinating paper by two political scientists, Shanto Iyengar, who's at Stanford, and Sean Westwood, who's at Dartmouth. They noticed that when you look at election surveys, which is the National Election Survey. Over time, people's attitudes towards the other party were dropping really sharply. And I don't have the numbers right in front of me here, but it was something like, you know, when you, you went back a couple decades and, and almost half of partisans liked the other party fine, right? When you had them sort of rate the other party on sort of a feelings thermometer and they just like their party better. And then over the last kind of like 30, 40, 50 years, what's happened has been that our attitude towards our own party has remained exactly the same. We don't like it. We're not becoming more partisan because we like our party better. What has happened is our estimation of the other party has, has dropped through the floor. And that got them interested that, that this partisanship we were seeing was something about how we viewed the other here. And then they, they saw this really fascinating set of poll results. In 1960, Americans were asked if they would care if their son or daughter married a member of the other party. And only 4% of Democrats and 5% of Republicans cared if their son or daughter married a member of the other party. It just didn't rate for them. Partisanship of their child's spouse was just not a relevant consideration. But that survey was redone in 2008 and 2010, and it found numbers between the 20s and 40s for Democrats and Republicans in whether they'd be upset if their child married a member of the other party. And that, that's a huge increase from 4 to 5% to, I think, the you know for the most recent one, it was in the 30% area for Democrats and above 40% for Republicans. When they looked at this, they thought that... This implied that partisanship was beginning to affect non-political facets of our lives, that partisanship was becoming an identity. And so they did these two experiments that were really interesting. One was they gave people sample resumes of high school students and asked them to award a scholarship. And these resumes could vary in three ways. The GPA could be a little higher, a little lower, right, 4.0 or 3.5. There could be a partisan cue, right? It could say that the kid had been president of their high school Democrats or their high school Republican club. And there could be a racial cue, which is to say it could have a stereotypically African-American or European-American name and say the person had been head of their sort of African-American student union at their high school. 
the variation that affected who got the scholarship most was partisan. When you gave a Democrat a scholarship and one of the kids was a Democrat and one of the kids was a Republican, even if the Democrat had a lower GPA, they gave the Democratic kid the scholarship. And the same thing for the Republican. They gave the Republican the scholarship, even if the Republican had a lower GPA. This is a completely non-political task. There's no reason politics should have entered into it at all. And this was a, a, this was a more powerful effect than we saw in GPA and a more powerful effect than we saw for race. Then they did this other study, which was, was really interesting. And we've actually recreated this study on Vox. You can take this test on Vox.com. But they did something called implicit association test, which is this sort of computer test where you have to match pictures and words very, very fast. And you have to match pictures with positive words or with negative words. And these tests began in the kind of race space. Um, and what they kind of found is that it's an interesting way of measuring racism because it happens at sort of a speed faster than conscious thought. And so it's kind of easy to do if it accords to what you already believe about the world. So if you think white people are good and black people are bad or, or vice versa, you're going to be able to complete the test much more easily than if you have a bias against black people and you're asked to match the faces of black people to positive adjectives mm -hmm. at that speed. So they built one of these for partisanship, and they found that partisans were more biased against each other than Americans were to people of other races. So they found that on an implicit bias test, when you, when you tried to get Democrats to match Republicans, you know, Republican iconography to things like the word excellent, or Republicans to match Democratic iconography to things like the word excellent, you saw huge amounts of bias on this very standard test. And these things together, what they show, I think, is one, that partisanship, when people actually know about it, has become a venue for discrimination. That it is something that we could actually expect to be causing things like workplace discrimination, discrimination and sort of marital sorting, you know, discrimination in venues that are just not very political. But also that it's become such a core identity to us and we hate the other side so much that it's actually become a very important cleavage in American life in and of itself. The sort of old view of, of partisan polarization was that it was a way of describing a disagreement. We belong to different parties and the parties are polarized because we disagreed. But what this kind of work shows is that the partisan identities themselves are becoming the cause of the disagreement. We dislike the other party because we dislike them. And that's created all kinds of reasons for us to come up with reasons to dislike them even more. It, it implies, I think, that this stuff is not amenable to very, you know, to, to fact, to evidence, to, to rational discourse. This is becoming a kind of a hatred that we carry very near to our hearts. And I think it's I think it's really interesting and profound research, but I think it's very scary. And one that we carry somewhat unconsciously. So one of the things yeah. I want to unpack those tests a little bit, the implicit bias test. These are ones you can find a racial one online. And the idea isn't that you that you might be someone who considers yourself right. totally accepting 100%. that you really, you know, you feel like you don't have any racial biases. And then you take this test and it reveals this implicit bias where you have in these fast situations yeah. more difficulty associating associating good words with different sort of races. So the idea behind these tests is to show these implicit biases that you yourself might not be aware right. that you carry, that it's not just catching people who are outwardly bigoted or expressing kind yeah. of, you know, racially biased views taking it to the political realm suggests that we're carrying those around with us unconsciously, that I might not even realize I have these biases going on, that I'm going to kind of recoil a little bit from somebody who's right. of a different political party that has become so ingrained over the past 20 or 30 years. And it's so it's funny to hear about, you know, that the statistic about marriage, you know, I grew up, my parents are both strong Democrats and my dad 
had said from like a young age, like, I don't care if you marry like a drug user or, you know, anything. Oh, really? It's just like, don't marry a Republican. Oh, really? Like, this is like the house that Sarah Cliff was raised huh. in. Totally. Oh, so like, you're really like an example. So I was like, oh, that's not huh. surprising. Like, I thought that was just a thing huh. in America that parents say to their kids that it's become like a. St- yeah, I was not surprised as a child of that sort of upraising. I think this is really interesting, but I sort of don't buy it. Uh-huh. Right. For one thing, we know Republican adults are having more kids than Democratic adults, and also that among a certain cohort of older people, there are just many more Republicans. But then we know that younger people are mostly Democrats. So you have, just in the real world, lots of interfamilial partisan flipping. Right. It's like a, an actual phenomenon. And I think in reality, my, my wife is pretty liberal. Her parents are Republicans. I guess we don't talk a lot about politics when we hang out because it would be tedious to have like big family political arguments. But like, it's fine. We get along. Like, <laughs> we have a good time. It's, it's really not a, not a big deal. You know, people say lots of things about their kids, but I would be fascinated to know how much walking the walk do people do about that. Well, so- because then, because yeah. I would say another sort of big macro thing that we can see is that Washington, D.C. is a city where almost everyone is a Democrat, but it is very starkly divided along racial lines, right? And we know that the city is segregated in like real meaningful ways. It's There's residential segregation, as there is in most American cities. But if you've ever had the uh, experience of living in a racially mixed neighborhood in DC, uh, which I certainly have at, at various times, it is segregated on an establishment by establishment basis. There was a good article, I think it was in, in Washingtonian, about why is dinner time so segregated in Washington, D.C. Black people and white people attend different churches, right? Whereas I think that if you go to like a predominantly white but politically mixed suburban area, you go to Loudoun County, Virginia, or I'm sure there's places like this in Ohio and, and our other swing states, I don't think you see anything like that kind of segregation in terms of people's partisan mentalities. Well, you know, can't go to Panera. Like, that's 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 the right. Republican sandwich shop, right? So, I mean, it's not to say that the experimental results are wrong. We know that race and racism are a big deal in America. We just know that from, like, history, life, reality. And then there's certain metrics that we can use to measure that. And then you can say, oh, okay, it might be fun as like an exercise to take those metrics and apply them to political partisanship. And it's interesting to see what results from that. But I think it's like a real mistake to then read that back in as if we have no information about how American society actually operates and conclude that partisan-based discrimination, particularly on an implicit subconscious level, is like as big a deal as race and racism. So, so I do want to say I do want to like say one thing on, on behalf of the the researchers here, because they would be very quick to point out, and, and we talk about this in the article. They are not saying it's as big of a deal. They're not saying it's as bad. They're definitely not saying it's worse. And it works very, very differently, right? One thing about racial, gender, uh, and other kinds of discrimination is that there are a lot of cues to do it in a way that like people don't sort of wander down the street and they're like Tea Party Patriot costumes or like wearing an Obama sticker on their forehead. I agree with what you're saying, but I do just want to be, I want to put in the disclaimer for them. That, that no, is no, not, absolutely. What they were trying to do is take a benchmark for this kind of test that we already have, because it's very hard to measure things like discrimination and automatic biases. And we've done a lot of it in race. So that's a benchmark we can do to say, 
is this more than we expect or less than we expect? And I mean, one reason they wanted to do the implicit association test was that, you know, and this is something that Iyengar said to me, they sort of looked at the scholarship test and said, we don't buy it. And the reason they didn't buy it was they figured that racism is very it is something you're supposed to suppress even if you haven't, right? right? So if you're sitting there with a researcher, even if your instinct is you're white and you want to give the scholarship to the white kid with a lower GPA, you're not going to do that. Right. Whereas partisanship is not that way, right. or not quite that way anyway. So one one hypothesis they had you know, with that test was that actually they weren't seeing what was really going on because people were suppressing suppressing their racism and, and, and giving mm-hmm. voice to their partisanship. He's got this good line where, you know, partisanship, it's one of the few things we're allowed to hate. Mm-hmm. And so they went to the simplicity association test. And I agree with you, right? I, I think that as much as that is a really interesting finding, I definitely want to like walk out and be like, oh, well, partisanship is a bigger <laughs> discriminatory deal in, in America than racism, right? You're not having... Uh, issues with who gets shot in America based on partisanship. But one thing that I I do think is really important, because you were just talking about residential segregation and marital segregation, this is new, right? Racism in America is very old. Mm -hmm. It's been around since the dawn of the country, since before there was an America. And even if racial attitudes today are better than they were, we have very powerful sort of social grooves that are worn into the way we live that speak to a tremendously significant legacy of deep, deep racism that continues on into this day. Partisanship was not like this 50 years ago. Like when you like looked at the way people married, when you looked at where they lived, when you looked at how they organized their lives, they just didn't sort based on partisanship. And now, and we are seeing this in where people choose to live. There's other research that I didn't go into in this piece, but about who they choose on dating sites mm-hmm. and how important political partisanship has become when they choose a mate. Right. And when you kind of look at some of these trends, if you assume that partisan polarization is going to either remain at steady state or, frankly, as I do, assume it'll get worse because I think the, the forces driving it are going to continue – and you look forward 50 years, 100 years, I mean, people really do now move to places where they don't interact with people who have a different political position than them, right? If, you know, kids graduate college and they might move to San Francisco because it is a very liberal town. Yeah, but right? this, and that is stuff one, is really happening. this is one problem with doing the comparison to 50 years ago, though, because one reason people didn't take those kind of partisan cues seriously 50 years ago is that the partisan cues didn't convey information 100%. 50 years ago. So it's... Which is- the part because the parties were more ideologically right. Mixed. So I mean, it's a big change, but it's almost so big a change that it's a little difficult to know how to interpret it. Yeah. Or you know what exactly sort of the comparison is. I mean, obviously in the '60s, people had some strong feelings about like hippies. Yep. You know, or or whatever, but it wasn't aligned with the process in, in the same way. Whereas if you look at how partisanship worked before World War One, it was very entrenched and it was very it wasn't identity the way it is now that people are invested in, but it was also very strictly tied to certain kinds of identities, right? So if you were a Southerner and you were black, you were definitely a Republican. And if you were a Southerner and you were white, you were definitely a Democrat. And that was a historic legacy that had nothing to do with like the bills in Congress today. And then in the North, Catholics were Democrats, except in some cities where Catholic Irish Democratic Party machines were so dominant that Italians became Republicans in response, but WASPs were Republicans. And there's a whole thing, you know, and so you can see within Protestant churches even that the the more evangelical branches would be more Republican, whereas the more liturgical branches would be more Democratic. And, you know, it was 
on the one hand, you could say, well, okay, so partisanship itself was this structuring identity then. But you could also say, no, it's like the parties were built out of these identity groups that had their own in-group and out-group sort of biases. And I do think that, in part, that's one of the things that you're seeing today. I read a book uh, recently called uh, called White Backlash, Immigration, Race, and American Politics. It's by uh, Marissa Abrahano and, and Zoltan Hainal, I think is how you say his name. Their argument, basically, is that the influx of Latinos into the United States and into the Democratic Party is reshaping what what race sort of means in politics to be more about who is white and who isn't rather than about who is black and who isn't. And also that it's giving just much more weight to the non-white point of view in politics and is making white people identify much more strongly with the Republican Party as like a custodian of white interests in the way that we're accustomed to non-white groups identifying with, with Democratic Party. Which is all just to say that they would say that partisanship is being sort of like remolded specifically along the lines of racial cleavages rather than as a separate cross-cutting sort of thing. Yeah. That it's just like partisanship is increasingly about racial and ethnic affiliations, which is how it was when, when America was in its partisan heyday. I think one other thing we haven't touched on as much, you know, you were mentioning how, you know, we see a lot of racial and ethnic divide and like where people live. But there's also people have another way to live now and it's through all the media they consume that's very different from when you were living your neighbor yeah, in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, you consumed the same five television channels that everybody else consumed. My parents live in like one of the few Republican areas of the Seattle suburbs, which is shocking that it exists, but there's one area represented by a Republican and they are, as you know, I mentioned earlier, quite liberal Democrats. And they are pretty much living in like a totally different world from their neighbors where like Fox News is very big and like they're listening to like Rush Limbaugh and my parents are, you know, in their house, like listening to MSNBC and getting their news from liberal websites. And my dad's like wandering around the neighborhood in his Obama T-shirt. There's this ability, you know, when you're in these areas that are looking homogenous where you do have partisan segregation, even in those spaces and you're able to like reinforce that and build that identity in a way that wasn't possible. Even and on like Facebook, you're almost forced sure, to, yes. right? That right. It's, not, it's not just that I can opt into only reading liberal articles, mm-hmm. but it's that unless I rework my entire life so that I didn't grow up in New York City and <laughs> mostly went to high school with people who themselves are liberal, if I consume media, the, what is currently the mainstream way to do it, which is logging onto Facebook and seeing what my friends have shared, I am forced to right. be sort of reinscribed in the particular socioeconomic and ideological context that, that I'm situated mm-hmm. in. And this is one reason I think that the sorting of ideology, which as you say, was ideology and partisanship used to be different. You had conservatives in the Democratic Party, liberals in the Democratic Party, and the same for the Republican Party. But now that they're paired, that was a very necessary condition to allow this to become a much more important personal identity because it allowed in a very, I think, important way for a sort of ecosystem to self-organize that helped people know who to hate. So, I mean, imagine being Fox News in 1950 and trying to, like, identify who the enemies were. And, you know, you can't attack the Democrats. You can't attack the Democratic Party because some of, you know, your best friends as a movement are Democrats. 
And so it was just much harder to start liberal from conservative before they kind of conveniently organized into parties to then channeled through American politics and had these tremendous consequences to which party got elected right now, now that they're now that they're so incredibly different. I mean, one reason I say that I think partisanship is going to continue to get worse and polarization will continue to get worse is that now that we have sorted into Republican and Democrat and now that that corresponds to conservative and liberal and to some degree, you know, it, it, it has a racial you know, inflection as well and, and, and you know, and a, a number of other identities are beginning to map onto that. We are just seeing that it is possible to map that onto many, many, many more kinds of identities and issues. I mean, something I was always really fascinated by was watching... I don't know how many people listening followed the sort of Gamergate thing, which was this kind of like very convoluted, strange war over video games and online harassment of feminist video game critics, and then a identity backlash of mostly men who felt that their interests as video gamers are being run over in the interest of political correctness, and on and on and on. And I'm not, I don't want to try to do justice to explaining. It was very bizarre. But what happened amidst it as it got bigger and bigger was that it a bunch of organizations that could give a shit about video games got very invested. And if you had just known which organizations are on which side, like Breitbart was a big pro-Gamergate thing. Salon was a big anti-Gamergate thing. It just looked like a fight over a government shutdown. Mm -hmm. But it had it was not. It was about it was about, as they put it, ethics in video game journalism <laughs> and ethics in, in how you respond, I guess, to video game journalism and, and, and how to how you send death threats to, to feminist video game critics. I think you're going to see a lot of that in the coming years. And I think that's what this kind of research really speaks to, that as these become identities that are clearer and more important to us, there's going to be more efforts to link those identities to other kinds of fights in American life. And that's going to further reinforce these identities and give you more sense of cleavage and distance from people on the other side. And that identity just keeps getting more powerful and more powerful and more powerful because more things get attached to it. It's not just what you believe about taxes. It's also what you believed about Gamergate. And it's also what you believed about you know certain kinds of just general cultural questions. There was a poll I always found interesting a couple of years ago that showed a huge majority of Democrats wanted 12 years of slave to win an Oscar. And like most Republicans didn't. And the Democratic and Republican parties had no position on this issue. Nobody had ever taken a position on this issue. This wasn't even an issue I would have considered a partisan cleavage. Yeah, but the Republicans have historically, in fact, been strongly against slavery. Right. Yes. Yes. So that, I think, is where I, I don't think this research is about whether this stuff is worse than racism, but it is using it as a benchmark to say this is becoming a way we sort that is very personal and is leading to a real kind of, of hatred. And, and as you say, I think it's much newer and the effects of it are younger. And there's not been as much time for people to build up patterns and so forth. But I do think that when you look at these trends and you try to extrapolate them forward, I think it's something worth at least thinking about and, and worrying about a bit. You know, I think that's very true. But another <laughs> important way that we sort ourselves is by which podcasts we, we listen to. And, so, and subscribe to. Yes, so I would take this opportunity to urge you to reinforce your identity by reviewing us well, rating us highly on iTunes, telling your friends to listen, to subscribe. You know, we're structured around evergreen topics, so people can check out the back catalog, find it relevant all the time. It's it's really, the weeds is a central part of my identity, and I, I think you should make it make it part of yours uh, out there, out there in, in internet land. Thanks for listening. Thanks to uh, to our sponsor as uh, the the message uh, to our producer AC Valdez, and we will the three of us will all be back next week for more Weed the Awesomeness. We will. 